the one mitzvah that's repeated probably more than any other mitzvah in all of the Torah, or in fact the concept that we find most often in all of practical Judaism is Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. Over and over, in many different mitzvahs, in many different forms, in many different ways, we are cautioned and reminded to always remember Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. The mitzvahs alone that contain the remembering of Mitzrayim, tefillin that we wear, Twice a day in Shema, we mention Yisus Mitzrayim. Mezuzah has reference to Yisus Mitzrayim. We have seven days of Pesach. We specifically the Mitzvah of Matzah on Pesach. We have Agad on Pesach. We have seven days of Sukkot. And we have sitting in the Sukkah. If you count, besides for those, which are the common Mitzvahs of Yisus Mitzrayim, remembering the fact that Hashem took Zedem Mitzrayim, there are 16 specific Mitzvahs that the Sefer Chinuch counts in regards to re- specifically remembering Yisus Mitzrayim. Obviously, this concept of Yisrael Hashem is central to all of our Vodas Hashem, and it's central to the, to the practice of the whole religion. And the question is why? Why is this such a central theme, and why is it play over and over something that we're focused on? So Ramban in Shemos, Paragimel, mentions a very interesting concept, and he says that really, the reason why Hashem told us over and over in the Torah to remember Yisrael Yisrael is because Hashem is not in the miracle business. If one is a circus performer, then he'll perform his act, he'll do his show over and over for whoever comes to the, to the big tent. But Hashem is not in the, mit, in the business of performing miracles. He's not in the show business. One time in history, Hashem showed that He was the creator and the maintainer of the entire concept of nature. That one time was Yisrael Mitzrayim. The reason why we are cautioned over and over to remember Yisrael Mitzrayim, to focus on it, is because that is the one sign in history when Hashem showed that He was showlate on Maiseberishis, that not only did Hashem create every aspect, every facet of this world, but that Hashem controls and maintains it. Therefore, we have all of the osos, all of the signs, all of the various things we do to remember Yisrael Mitzrayim, to always bring us back, because it is the foundation and fundamental underpinnings of our religion. So, in fact, the reason why we have Shema, the reason why we have it as a part of the reason why we have seven days of Pesach and seven days of Sukkot is to constantly bring us back to this, because, again, it is the underpinnings, the foundation of our, of our Amunah. Now, it's interesting to note that most people make a mistake when it comes to emuna. Most people's belief is that either you believe, you're either a person who believes in God, or you don't believe in God. For instance, I was born of a from house, and since my parents believe, so I'm a practicing Jew too, and I believe, and had I been born in a different house, I guess I wouldn't, be, wouldn't believe in... That's how most people look at religion. The reality is that the basis of our emuna is supposed to be a logical cognitive thought process. We're supposed to be able to look at the world, understand that perforce this house has a master. Anything that exists, anything that shows wisdom means there was forethought and planning. And a person is from a cognitive level, from an intellectual level, is supposed to understand that there is a creator to this earth. The difficulty that we human beings have is that we are very corporeal, we're very physical. There's a part of me that's pure intellectual, and there's part of me that's pure physical. The problem that I face with dealing with a bore olam, a creator, is that all of my senses deny the presence of Hashem. I can't see Hashem, I can't hear Hashem, 
I can't taste Hashem. The five senses that I have deny that Hashem exists. The reason is because Hashem is Ruchni, Hashem is spiritual, Hashem is not limited by any physicality. I, as I exist in this body right now, exist in a physical mode. The way I relate to everything in this world is through my physicality, through my five senses. And my five senses cannot relate to Hashem. Therefore, we human beings find ourselves somewhere on this sort of lost betwixt and between state. Where obviously we know on one level that Hashem exists, and we're, we're maminim, we're religious Jews, we're practicing Jews, and we believe in Hashem. Yet, in a very real day-to-day level, in a really day-to-day sense, we, we're almost, we act as if we don't believe. Many people find religious upstanding Jews, find themselves spaced out during davening, spaced out during mitzvahs, spaced out during all of their avodas Hashem. Not because they, on an intellectual level, deny Hashem. They, if you'd ask them, where is Hashem? Of course Hashem is here. Of course Hashem created the world. But the problem is, on an operative level, in a real operating day-to-day basis, Hashem is not present in their life. For a while, we had a little fun in class discussing the fact that sometimes you'd almost think that religious people should change the blessing from Baruch Ata Hashem to Baruch Ata I deny Hashem, even though it's a, it's a joke, but it's not such a joke, because again, unfortunately, the reality is for many of us, when we're dealing with the concept of relating to Hashem, Hashem is not present. And it's almost like I deny Hashem, Hashem being the master of the world. Because again, I am betwixt and between. I'm half spiritual, half intellectual. My other half of me is pure physical. And my physicality denies the presence of Hashem. Therefore, it's hard for me to daven. It's hard for me to sense Hashem's presence. It's hard for me to say brachas with kavana. Because there's a full part of my operating reality that denies Hashem. Therefore, we were given many, many mitzvahs to allow us to come to a higher level of understanding that Hashem exists. The word belief is actually a poor word because we Jews are not supposed to believe in God. The word belief is something that refers to a, I'm not really sure, I, I hope. In other words, if someone gives me a check, I believe that it won't bounce. What that really means in plain English is I'm most likely kind of assured, but I'm really not sure. Belief, as it's used in the common word, has no shaykhus, no connection to what we as Orthodox Jews practice. Our goal is to know that Hashem exists. To know that Hashem exists, just like if I touch a piece of wood, it's solid and it's real, it's concrete. Ultimately, a Jew is supposed to know that Hashem is the creator, that Hashem maintains the world, and that Hashem is present right here. That is not supposed to be the level of belief as some quasi sort of fictional sort of, I'm not sure, but it's supposed to be concrete and real. The difficulty is that it takes an awful lot of work for a person to reach that level that they really concretely feel Hashem's presence, that they are literally davening, speaking to Hashem, and they're aware during the day of Hashem's presence. The work of a Jew is to grow in levels of emuna, levels of cognizance of Hashem, levels of awareness, till a Jew fully and completely knows with clarity that Hashem is present. That's something that does not come naturally to a person. It's not something that a person wakes up in the morning and says, Good morning Hashem, I know you exist. But it is something that a person can and is supposed to work towards. It's something that a Jew aspires to. The central point of the mitzvahs is to bring a person to that cognition. The Ramban says 
that if you want to know what is the focal point of all the mitzvahs, if you want to know what do all the mitzvahs direct the person towards, it's towards this one understanding that Hashem exists, that a person should be able to say the words, you are my creator and in front of you I stand. The Ramban says that's all the mitzvahs are driving towards that. All of the verses, 613 mitzvahs, all point the person to come to that one cognition, that one understanding, you are my creator and in front of you I stand. But again, it's something that takes specific work and specific focusing on. We have many, many mitzvahs in the Torah specifically for the reason that it's something that we're combating our very nature. My nature, my senses, my body, my existence now denies the presence of Hashem. If I want to come to a level of relating to Hashem, understanding Hashem, knowing that Hashem exists, I have to do the avoda, the work that it takes, and it's a constant battle. All day long, my nature, my body, my physicality denies Hashem. To combat that, I have to constantly use the various techniques and mitzvahs that Hashem gave us to come to the full recognition of Hashem. Hence, the variety and multitude of mitzvahs that focus us on this one single thought. You see, it's Mitzrayim, all of the miracles that accompany it, and the Kriya Shamsuf all bring a person to see the hand of Hashem. We have all of these mitzvahs to allow us to remember, to repeat, to review again, so that it becomes clearer and clearer, so that ultimately a person understands and relates to Hashem. For this reason, what I'd like to spend the next number of sessions on is going through the basic story of Yisias Mitzrayim, just getting an overview of the almost the history, the story, based on the Chumash, based on some of the Mufarshim, but the main objective is to get a very clear understanding of the events as they, as they happened. If we'll go through carefully, step by step, I think we'll get a better understanding and a better grip so that we can actually relate to Yisias and Sraim, so that we can relate to the Makos, we can relate to what the enslavement was like, so that we could eventually fulfill that which Chazal tell us, a person is obligated to see himself as if he left, as if he left Mitzrayim. So we'll start with the beginning, the first parak in Shmos. The first passing in Shmos opens up, These are the names of the Bnei Yisrael who came to Mitzrayim, Yaakov and his house. Now this opening is very important for us to, under, to come to an understanding of the enslavement. There are two sources for the length of the enslavement. We're told, Avram Vinay was told that 400 years, your children will be in bondage. Actually, at the Brisbane Amasarim, when he was originally told it, he was told 430 years. At the very end of the Yisiyas Mitzrayim, in Perikidala, the Pasuk says that the Bnei Yisrael were there for 400 years. Now, we know that there are various counts as to when it actually, the actual enslavement begins. The basic starting point was the Brisa Ben Abbasarim, which was 430 years before the actual Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. At that point, Hashem began counting from that point, 30 years before Yitzhak was born. From the time that Yitzhak was born is 400 years to the Yitzhiyah. Now, it's very interesting to note, you're all probably familiar with the fact that there are many, the King James Version of the Bible has a number of changes in the basic Taich of the Chumash than we know it to be true. For instance, the last Pasuk in Yud Beis and Shemot says, Vahimi Shloshim Shana Arba Me'a Shana, it was after 430 years that day the Menei Yisrael left Mitzrayim. 
Now, one of the changes that the Chachamim made to Talmai HaMelech, Talmai HaMelech was an Egyptian king after Alexander, and he decided that he wanted to read the Torah. For, throughout history, the Torah was a Jewish nation's property and was not allowed, no guy had any access to it. Talmai HaMelech, who was a, the then emperor over the area, which included Eretz Yisrael, made a decree. He brought forth 70 of the Chachamim, he put them into 70 separate houses and told them, you will either translate the Torah or I will kill you. And he forced the translation of the Torah. Now this was considered, as we know, this was considered a terrible day for the Chayosol. We were not interested in having the Goyim know it. But any version of the Bible that you now see, the King James Version or any Catholic or Christian edition of the Bible, stems from that original Greek translation. There were a number, the Medrash tells us there were 10 Shinuyim, 10 changes that were made to Talmai HaMelech that were not actually shot in the Chumash. One of them was rather obvious. He had a wife whose name was Arnevis, and Arnevis, which means a rabbit, so instead of translating the word Arnevis as a rabbit, it was changed. There were a number of changes that were made. Another one, Bereshis Barlakim, which if you read incorrectly says, Bereshis created Hashem. So since that would too easily lead a person to false thoughts, they changed the Chachamim changed around the wording, and instead the the wording was Hashem created in the beginning. In any case, one of the great Nisim was the fact that all seventy Chachamim, despite the fact that they were in separate houses, despite the fact that they had no communication, made the same ten changes exactly the same. One of the changes was when the pasuk tells us that four hundred years, or in this case four hundred thirty years, the Jewish nation will be in Mitzrayim. The Chachamim changed that to read, for 430 years you will count exile from the time of you and your sons and your sons, meaning referring back to Avram. That Avram will begin counting the 430 years from you and your son Yitzhak and downward shall proceed. In any case, from the Brisa Ben Abbasar, there were 430 years till the Yitzhak, from the time of Yitzhak was born, it was 400 years. The actual time begins with the first Pasuk in Shemos. The first passage in Shemot says that Yaakov and his house came down and Rashi explains to us from here we're able to derive the actual length of the time that the Jews spent in Mitzrayim. We know that Yaakov's children, one of them was Levi. We know that Levi's daughter was Yochevet. Yochevet was the last child born literally by Achomos. She was born literally on the way down to Mitzrayim. We also know that Yochevet was 130 years old when Moshe Rabbeinu was born. It says, V'yikach bas Levi is bas Levi, and she was 130 when she had Moshe. We know that Moshe was 80 years old when, uh, when he came in front of Mitzrayim. Hence, we know that the actual enslavement from the time Yaakov came down until the final you see this Mitzrayim was 210 years. Hashem counted that as the full, full 400 years. And in terms of the actual time that the Jews spent in Mitzrayim, that was 210 years. Next passage tells us, Ruvein Shimon Levi Yehuda Yisachar Zulun Vinyamin Daman Avteli Gav Asher Vayikol Nefesh Yotzei Yerach Yaakov Shivim Nefesh The entire house of Yaakov was 70 the Yosef Hayav Mitzrayim and Yosef was in Mitzrayim. So we know that when the Kaisal came down 210 years before the actual exodus there were 70 altogether. The next passage tells us, Vayamas Yosef Vachol Echa Vachol Adarahu Yosef died and all of his brothers in that entire generation. Now this Pasuk is also very important for us to understand the historical setting because the Shebud, the actual enslavement, did not begin until the last of the Shifteka, until the last of the brothers died. 
Now that allows us to understand the historical setting because we know that Levi was the last of the brothers to die and Levi was 137 years old when he died. So the Sifti Chachamim on Perik Vav, Vav explains to us from here you can understand exactly how long the oppression lasted. It's a full 210 years from the time that Yaakov came down until we actually left Mitzrayim. Levi lived 137 years. Now, we know that Yosef was 30 years old when he stood in front of Paro. We know also that the six children of the, all of the children were born during six years. All of the Shifteko were born during six years except for Binyamin. We know that Levi was the third and within that six year period came Yosef. So we know that Yosef was four years older, I'm sorry, Levi was four years older than Yosef. If Yosef was 30 years old when he came down, that means that Levi was 34. We also add to that the seven years of famine, during which, uh, seven years of plenty, during which Yosef was in Mitzrayim as Melech. Two years of the famine, then he sent for Yaakov and the children. So the entire family of Yaakov came down nine years later. That means that Levi was 43 years old. If Levi's 43 and he dies 137 years, he, the enslavement doesn't begin until he's 137 years old. We know that 94 years are left. That means the entire enslavement of the Jewish people was 116 years. What that means is that the opening of the Chumash, this 93 years, which is set over in a few psukim, which is the setting for the, for the stage of the enslavement, there was no torture to the Jewish nation. Now, it's very important to understand that if the, for the first 93 of the 210 years, there was no enslavement, no taxation. Not only was there no enslavement, but the Jewish people were coveted and the Jewish people were respected and held in awe. When Yosef was the viceroy, he was the second in command, when he bought all of the land in Mitzrayim during the years of famine, Paro became the landowner of all land in Mitzrayim. What Yosef did was he shifted around everyone from their original land so that the Jews coming down would not feel like they were strangers in a strange land. So they were not the only ones dislocated, but every citizen in Mitzrayim was dislocated. When the Jews came down, they were not just equal citizens, they were held above, their brother was the, the viceroy, they were held in great esteem. And the entire time that the Shvatim were alive, they enjoyed great honor and there was nothing but respect that they were treated with. Keep in mind that the Shvatim spent most of their lives in Mitzrayim. If Levi was 34 when he came, well, I'm sorry, was 43 when he came down, he died 137, that was average for the Shvatim. They spent most of their life in Mitzrayim and the first years were not only fine, they were wonderful years and during this 93 years of non-oppression the Jews had a wonderful existence we also know that within a very short number of years things changed radically what we'll do in the next session is describe how it went in such a very short time from the years of glory right after Levi died with the last of the brothers <coughs> things began a very quick decline and we'll discuss step by step how in fact Paro enslaved the people and ended up with the entire enslavement and torture of the Jewish people. The Pasuk in Shmos Aleph, Pasuk Vav, the Pasuk tells us, Vayamas Yosef v'chol echa v'chol adorahu. Yosef died and all of his brothers and that entire generation. As we said 
Last time we mentioned that at this point begins the enslavement. Now just in terms of the timeline focus, we are 94 years into the actual enslavement. The entire time that the Jewish people lived in Mitzrayim, from the time that Yaakov came down with the brothers, is 210 years. The first 94 years, because the Shvatim, because... <clears throat> until Levi died, as long as the Shvatim were alive, there was no actual enslavement. So the first 94 years were lived rather peacefully. Now what's interesting to note is from the year 94 till another 36 years, which is the time that Moshe is born, is the worst years of the actual oppression and enslavement. Meaning from years 94 to 36 years after it, the situation deteriorates rapidly. Now why that's especially interesting is because when Yosef was in Mitzrayim, he was the viceroy, he was in power, and as we mentioned last time, the brothers were held in very high esteem. Not only did they keep their own area, Goshen was where all the Jews lived, but they were in power, wealthy, and they were held in awe and esteem by all of the local Mitzrayim. This awe continued until the 94th year of the actual oppression. At that point, from year 94 on, begins the actual enslavement. Within a few short years, we go from the Jews being held in high esteem to the point where the firstborn boys, or actually any Jewish boy, is killed. And it's very important to understand how this happened. Now, the next Pasuk really gives us a clue. The Pasuk says, The Bnei Israel multiplied and increased and became many. And as you'll note, there are six expressions in that Pasuk. The reason why there are six expressions in that Pasuk is because actually the Medrash tells us that each birth, the Jewish women had six children. Now, I don't no, if that is literal, it's, uh, sometimes it's hard to know which Midrashim are meant to be taken literally and which ones aren't. But we do know that within 210 year span, the Jewish nation went from 70 people to approximately 3 million. We know the count at Har Sinai, right, we actually were, being Makabal Torah, we know that there were 600,000 men between the age of 20 and 60. Now, if there are 600,000 men between the age of 20 and 60, if you add this women, you assume it's equal, you have now 1.2 million people. If you add the children under 20, you add the people over 60, you have at least 3 million people. So that means that the Bnei Israel, when we left Mitzrayim, we were 3 million. When we came down, we were 70. That means we went from 70 people to 3 million in a short span of 210 years. Now, if you want to know how this works, it's, it's actually exponentially it works out very simply because there are actually eight generations approximately assuming a generation is 20 years you have about eight generations during those 210 years if in fact if you can note I do have a table here if you note that assuming that the Bnei Yisrael had an average of 10 children each then each, if each family had 10 children then first generation being 70 next generation would be 350 if you multiply it out within the 10 generations it actually ends up being 5.4 million people because again the exponential math if the generations if you multiply it by 5 if you have 10 children so each couple has 10 children it effectively multiplies the population by 5 each generation multiplying by 5 ends up in 8 generations going from 70 going to 5.4 million people so mathematically it's, it's quite clear how it worked again it's not clear exactly how many children each family had, whether the Medrash is to be taken literally that each family, each birth was six or not, but in any case it was a tremendous population explosion. Now this Pasuk is really the cause of the next 
events that, that are about to occur. A new king came on Mitzrayim, Yosef, who did not know Yosef. Now, simply read, the Pasuk tells us a new king. We're all familiar with the Medrash that says it's a machokas. Is it a new king or he just made new decrees? The Medrash tells us actually what happened was simply. Paro did not want to oppress the Jewish people. The, his ministers and the people in power came to him and told him, if you do not begin enslaving the Jewish people, we are going to take you off your throne. Why is that? Because the Mitzrim recognized that the Jewish population explosion was out of control. The Jews were multiplying at an incredible rate, and it wasn't Paro who began it, it was actually the Mitzrim themselves who had a tremendous fear of the Jewish nation overtaking them, and they came to Paro and said, I, we want you to begin stopping the growth of this population, at which point Paro said, I can't do it. We are indebted to these people. Yosef saved the entire nation. Yosef is the one in, in whose right, because of him, we exist now. How can we return? In any case, they took him, they dethroned him for three months. After three months, he agreed, and that's when he began. A new king, same man, assuming, but he now began with new decrees. He made himself as if he did not know Yosef. He forgot the favors that Yosef did to the Jewish nation. And then the Pesach says, He said to his nation, He made a public proclamation. The Bnei Yisrael are great and many more than us. Let us become wise to them. Let us become wise to these people. Lest they increase, lest a war begin, and they will join our people, and they'll fight with us, and we will be thrown out of the land. Basically, apparently the Mitzvah had a fear, whether real or, or not, that the Jewish nation would rise up against them and would actually throw them out of the land. Therefore, Paro began this series of oppressions to enslave and diminish the population growth. The next passage tells us, He appointed upon them tax offices of taxation. Why did he do it? In order to oppress them in their hard work. And they built certain fortified cities to Paro, Piso, and Ramses. Now the Medrash tells us, interestingly enough, that Paro actually wanted to stop the population growth. That was his main focus. The problem that he had was he needed a strategy to come about to do this. The Ramban explains to us that he could not merely go out killing the Jews, and he couldn't merely enslave them for two reasons. First of all, the population at large would never agree with it, because, again, for all these years the Jews were held in high esteem. They were important and powerful people. That You couldn't now cause a the entire Hamon Am, the regular average person, can now turn against the Jews. Additionally, the Jewish nation would, would rise up in rebellion. If we'd start making decrees, kill the Jews, the Jews were many, the Jews were strong, the Jews would rise up and kill out the, the Mitzrim who would try to, to, to enslave them. So he came up with a strategy. The Ramban explains there was a number of steps. The first step in the strategy was to tax them. As the Pazik says, he put, tax, he put taxes upon them, the tax basically was as follows. He walked out one day wearing a brick around his neck. And he had all of his ministers join him and he made a proclamation that for the good of Mitzrayim we need to build various cities, we need to fortify peace on Ramses, and as a public service we expect all people to begin contributing. 
Now, the Medrash tells us actually what happened was the first day was voluntary. That means any Jew who wanted to work worked, any Jew who didn't didn't, but the Egyptians took careful count of what each person produced. Now, since the Jews were loyal, and this was made as a national citizen's attempt to benefit Mitzrayim, the Jews worked hard and they produced whatever bricks they were supposed to, and in fact, we know that it was written down, each Jew, the amount that he produced that day was written down. The next day, is when Paro decreed that the taxation for each Jew is the equivalent to what he produced yesterday. So yesterday when he worked voluntarily, from this point on he was forced as a tax to produce that amount of bricks for the, for the Egyptian cause. The Jews were not brick layers, they were not brick bakers, this was something that was foreign to them, but now they were taxed by the Egyptian law to now bake bricks. The reality is that this was not that great of an oppression. It means it was hard labor, it was physical labor. This was the first step in the actual enslavement of the people. Now this continued for a, a while. The Medrash doesn't tell us how long, but it's very clear that he was unsuccessful in what he was attempting to do. His main focus was not to tax the Jews. It wasn't to even enslave them. It was actually to stop the population growth. But the problem is, even making them work hard didn't stop the growth. So the Pesach then tells us that the next step was that Kasher Yanuo, so the more they oppressed them, the more they increased. His next step actually was to ask them to build cities, fortified cities called Pisum and Ramses. Now Pisum and Ramses, which were entire huge cities that was, were not fortified and became fortified, the Medrash tells us that actually what it was, was an attempt to break the will of the nation because the land there was not secure. It was a sort of, I don't know if it's quicksand or some type of marshy barge so that whenever you would build the bricks as they would pile up would literally sink into the ground. So you'd build it up more and it would sink in and more and sink in. So no matter how much the Jews built and no matter how loyal they were, no matter how, how hard they worked, they could not build up this fortified city because the foundation on which it lied was literally sinking into the ground. In fact, the expression oppression is from Pisum, as Ram says, the Gemara tells us, Pisum Ram says, whoever dug there died. Apparently it was very dangerous and a very oppressive type of work. Despite that fact, the more he oppressed them, they continue growing. The Egyptians became disgusted because of Bnei Israel. Now there's a very important Rashi that brings down a Medrash that the Egyptians, not only did they hate the Bnei Israel, they themselves became hated in their own eyes. They were so filled with hatred for the Bnei Israel that they hated themselves. It's a very interesting effect that the ultimate victim of anger is the person who gets angry. It's rare that you'll see an angry person happy. When a person's angry, they're furious, they're angry, they're upset, the Egyptians apparently were so hated, so hated the Jews, that they, by a kutsu, they hated themselves because of extreme hatred. It's interesting, the Gemara tells us that it really started out on the part of Yisrael, they, the, some members of the Kali Yisrael stopped doing bris milah. Apparently 94 years, 100 years into the exile already, we were influenced by the surrounding Gentiles, and some of members of the Jewish nation stopped doing bris milah. Hashem said, if you're going to stop doing bris milah, I'm going to turn the love that the Egyptians have for you into hatred, and in fact the Egyptians hated them to an extent that was abnormal. They literally could not stand the sight of a Jew via kutsu. They hated the Jews so much that literally they hated themselves. Next passage tells us, 
The Mitzrim oppressed the Jewish nation, which means with extreme oppression. It was no longer just the brick breaking, it was no longer just, in fact, building peace on Mizram says, the next Pasuk tells us, they made bitter the lives of the Jews with hard labor, with cement and bricks, and all work in the field. Now, in fact, Paro's next decree was to again prevent the population explosion. He said to the Jews as follows, we have to build these cities, we need the brick baking, we need additionally the workers to pile up and build it, there's no way you're going to be able to do the amount of work if you sleep at home. From now on, all workers must sleep in the fields where they're working. His whole intention was to separate the husbands from the wives so that there shouldn't be any more children. The Medrash tells us that in fact what happened was Hashem arranged and they said each night, each, uh, when the women would go out to draw water, instead of just water, water and fish would come and the Nashim Sidkanis would go out to the fields to, to clean their husbands and help them and they'd be they would be there together and in fact the Jews continue growing and continue the population growth all their work they oppress them this last stage is a repeat of the word the Gemara tells us what this means is they began giving men's labor to women and women's work to men meaning their entire focus was no longer productive they were not interested in building Mitzrayim all they wanted to do was oppress the people so not only did they find every type of work that was difficult they also began oppressing them by giving the men's work upon the women and the women's work upon the men so the man had to cook, the woman had to be out in the field anything to break the spirit now, the Rabban tells us that this was actually a progression it didn't happen overnight it didn't just, Paro didn't just say okay you're going to go out to the fields actually the way the Ramban explains it is the first step was he made these certain amount of bricks that you have to bake after that he made the following decree any Egyptian man any, well, any Jewish man must give service to the king he must give at least one month's service to the king so it became a taxation to the people now that they had to serve the king the next step was, Paro made it, that any Egyptian man who wanted a worker had the right to take a Jewish man and make him work. Effectively, he was enslaving the population step by step, <coughs> week after week, month after month, until after a good number of years, effectively, the Jewish people went from being a free people to being a slave nation. Now, we're now, again, this time period till the birth of Moshe is only 36 years, and at this point, the Pasuk tells us, it was not at all effective. It's already almost a generation and a half, and the population has exploded again and again. Again, each generation is multiplying times five. So if by the third or fourth generation, if there were 8,000 Jewish people, the next generation was 50,000, next 200,000, and it wasn't anything he came up with as a plan wasn't stopping the growth. So the king of Israel said to the women who gave birth, Ivrios, the Jewish women, their names were Shifra and Pua. Now the Medrash tells us that these two people were in fact Yochevet and Yochevet's daughter Miriam. Now it's clear <coughs> that something's unusual about this Pasuk because for a population this large it's unusual to have two midwives. Now we know also that Miriam was not older than five years old at the time. 
so really it means one, one midwife. Now, if we're now 80 years before Moshe is born, so we're about the fifth generation, we have at least 40,000 people in the Jewish nation, and we're now multiplying at a rate of times five, that means approximately 8,000 births a year, about 24 a day. There's no way that one midwife could be the entire midwife for the whole population. So there is a machokas in, in the Rishonim, the Ebenezer says there were actually 500 midwives, these were the women who were on top, meaning Yochebed was in charge, she was the head nurse. The, uh, the other Rishonim learned that these were the midwives in the local area, right by, uh, right where Paro lived. In any case, Paro says to them, when you give birth to the Jewish boys, <coughs> look when the woman gives birth, you should kill him, if she's a girl, save her. Kill the boys. Now this is the third decree. The first decree is taxation. Second decree is hard work. The third decree is kill out the boys. Says the Medrash, Paro made a fundamental error. Because if his goal here is to stop the growth of the Jewish nation, he would be much wiser to say, let, in fact, let the boys live. Let's kill out the girls. Why? Because one boy can father, can marry many women and father quite a number of children. The, in terms of reproduction, it's the women that you want to kill out. Yet, in fact, what he did was killed out the boys and not the girls. Mar tells us one reason, because the Mitzrayim was Shetufei Zima. They were lustful. They, want, they were involved in all types of in, inappropriate activities. His thought was, it's a waste. To waste a woman, it's, it's a waste. In other words, it's a, it's a rather... You see an extent of taiva. You see how, how taiva can blind a person. Now, he wasn't marrying these Jewish women. It's not appropriate for a king to marry them. But it's a waste of a... You can't waste women. That's a waste. Even though for his own political motivation, it was far superior to actually kill the women and keep alive the men, he couldn't do it. And therefore, he made this mistake and he decreed that the boys should be killed. The midwives feared Hashem, and they did not do as they were commanded by the king of Mitzrayim. Not only didn't they kill out the boys, but they actually kept them alive. They actually helped and they did various things to ensure that they would stay alive. Now, what's interesting to note is the Medrash tells us that actually Shifra and Yochebet were mispalo to Hashem, down to Hashem with a very particular tefillah. They said, Hashem, What's going to happen if there's even one miscarriage or even one stillbirth born child in the Jewish nation, the Jews are going to suspect us. If a child's born, now invariably they're infant fatalities. When a woman gives birth, there are always some boys that are born either maimed or some who are born who, who don't make it or, or die in childbirth. Yet in the entire time period over here, there wasn't one stillborn, there wasn't one child who was born maimed or injured. They were all born live and healthy because of the tefillah of Yochevitz. Yochevitz turned to Hashem and said, Hashem, please have mercy. If in fact one child is born maimed or dies, the Jews are going to think, we did it, we were responsible, we listened to Paro, and as a miracle, there wasn't a child who was born injured. So the king of Israel called to the women who gave birth, the midwives, the he said to them, Why did you do this? Why did you keep alive the boys. But Tomer Mialdos El Paro, so the midwife said to Paro, Kilo Kanoshima Mitzros Ivrios, the Egyptian women are not like the Jewish women, Kichayos Hena, 
they are very, they're bucky, they are very, they're like animals in the wild who do not need a midwife. Before we even come to them, they've already given birth. Meaning you've asked us to do something that we have no control over. By the time we get there, the child has already given birth. We can't kill them as you wished. Why did Paro want them to kill at childbirth? It was all part of the plot not to be found out. Until this point, Paro was still afraid to openly kill Jews. The reason was because there were still liberal people in the society, there were still reasonable people in the society. If Paro would have said, go butcher, go murder Jewish children, there would have been a rebellion. His plan was subtle. He told the midwives, I want you to sneak along. When you're giving birth, it should just look like an accident. It just happened to be that the child were born, they died in childbirth. It looks like a natural event. In fact, the, midstream, the, the midwives did not listen. He pulls him into the palace and says, what's going on? How did you listen? In any case, they say, because the Mitri women are different, the Jewish women are different than the Mitri, and we couldn't accomplish this. The next passage tells of Yitav, looking at the Yaldos, Hashem was good to the midwives, and the nation continued multiplying. Now it's interesting to note, during this time period, approximately, it would seem, that during these number of years, the nation went from about 50,000 to about 200,000 in size. So that means, again, we're dealing with roughly 8,750 births per year during this time. So the nation is multiplying and, and exploding. It was because the midwives feared Hashem. Hashem made them houses. Rashi tells us because of this taking, basically risking their lives. Yochavit and Miriam risked their lives because of, on command of the king, they were told to do something and they refused to do it. In Paro's court, if you didn't listen, basically it was uh, like any good despot, he would kill you. Because they didn't listen and because they respected Hashem's word, they were rewarded with Bate Kahuna and Bate Malchus. Malchus and Kahuna was supposed to come out from Miriam and Yochavit. Now it's interesting to note that Miriam and Yochavit were not rewarded during their lifetime at all. They risked their lives and there's no question that they they did properly at great danger, but their reward didn't come to them during their lifetime. Their reward came long after they died. They were given the house of Kahuna and the house of Melucha, of Mela, of kings, coming from them. Oftentimes a person is not rewarded immediately, later generations, sometimes many generations later. And again, here's a, an interesting example of that. In any case, by Yitzhak Paro Paro said to his entire nation, saying, any boy who is born, throw him into the river, and any daughter, girl, keep alive. Now this last decree, which is the fourth, is more severe. Here what he's doing is he's saying any child born, not just Jewish, but even Mitzri should be killed. Why is this? Because his astrologers told him, we've seen a sign that the Moshian Shah Yisrael, the one who's going to redeem, save the Jewish nation, has been born. But the only thing is, we do not know whether he's Jewish or Mitzri. Now, keep in mind, the astrologers were very sharp. In the time of Paro, there was certain knowledge that men had that man no longer has. We are now technologically very advanced. We have certain knowledge of sciences that men then didn't. But there were certain knowledges of black magic, of different forces that Hashem put into the world that men then had, which we no longer have. One of those inf- fields of knowledge 
was the field of knowledge of astronomy, being able to look into the stars and see the mazolos. The mazolos are certain forces that Hashem put in the world via which He writes the future, meaning to say Hashem created certain mazolos, certain mazels that will actually have a force to control events. So if Hashem wants a certain nation to be powerful, to be strong, not only is it something that Hashem decrees directly, but in the mazolos are written certain things. These Egyptian men were very knowledgeable about the mazolos, about reading the, the stars, and they saw that in fact the Mashiach Shel Yisrael, the one who was going to redeem the Jewish nation, was born. However, the problem was, he was in fact brought up in the house of Paro. He was, in fact, the crown prince. Moshe was, was brought up by Basha in Paro's palace. Therefore, in the sky, when they were reading the zodiac, when they were reading the stars, what they saw was they couldn't tell if it's a Jew who's going to rebel and save the Jewish nation, or it's a Mitzri, because, in fact, it was a Mitzri prince who did it. And therefore, they said, we don't know who it is. So Paro said, fine, kill anyone. Kill any child born during this time period. Now, what's especially interesting to note is that his expression was any child born throw him into the river now there are many ways to kill a child he was very specific to say throw them into the river and really the reason is based on what the Pasuk told us earlier Paro's original expression was let us become wise to them lo is singular lo was Paro saying let us become wise to God we know that God is powerful. We know that He's paid people back. Let us become wise. We know that He promised in the Dor HaMabel. When Hashem brought the Mabel on Noah, He promised He'll never bring a Mabel again. We know that God pays back Mida Kinege Mida, Measure Kinege Measure. If we kill via water, since God promised that He'll never bring another Mabel, He's not going to be able to punish us. Therefore, Paro felt secure that the way to kill the boys was to drown them, knowing full well that Hashem would never be able to punish. Rashi brings down, Rashi Yashin tells us that in fact he made an error because Hashem only promised he would not bring a mabel onto the entire world. Hashem never promised that he was not going to drown anyone, and in fact the Mitzrim would drown on Yam Suf, Mida Kenegi Mida, for killing out the Jewish boys. In any case, what we're dealing with is a very sophisticated anti Semite. We're dealing with a man who reads the Mazalas, a man who knows Hashem, who knows the system, the way Hashem runs the world, and his problem is that the Jewish nation is becoming, multiplying and becoming stronger, and he is now waging a war. As we get more involved in the future Prokim, we'll soon see that the war no longer exists as a war of the Egyptians against the Jews, it quickly becomes a war of ideology, it becomes a war of the Avarazaras that Paro believed in, versus the concept of Hashem as the Bore Olam, and as the Parakim unfold, we'll see more and more that is actually what the, what the fight was involving. Perik Bez opens up, Vayelet Ishmi Bez Levi, a man went from the house of Levi, Vayikach Es Bas Levi, and he took a Bas Levi. It's very clear, the Pesach is clearly not mentioning names. Now let's keep in mind, in terms of the time period over here, we just had the decree, the final decree of Paro, the worst decree, is that any boy born is to be killed, is to be sent into the Yor. Now, it's clear that not only was Paro again killing every Jewish child, but he's meant to kill every single child alive because he didn't know whether the child born 
was supposed to be a Jew or an Egyptian. Now the Medrash tells us that there was actually an interesting event that occurred at this point. Amram, who was the Rosh Sanhedrin, said to his wife, this is futile. We are giving birth to children and the children are being slaughtered wholesale, meaning there was very little chance of a child making it alive. Not only was Paro very, very vicious in his decrees, he was very effective in their being fulfilled. So what was happening was that literally every child born was being killed. Certainly, every male child was killed. So Amram says, this is ludicrous. We're having children for them to be slaughtered. At which point he was Poresh Ishto, he separated from his wife. Amram's position at the time was the Rosh Sanhedrin. He was the God Hador. And he was respected as such. When he was Porish Mishto, when he left his wife, all of the Chachamim followed suit, at which point the, apparently all of the Bnei Yisrael, or at least the Torah loyal Jews in the class, were separated from their wives. The Medrash tells us that there was a conversation that occurred between his daughter, Yocheved, I'm sorry, Miriam, and Amram. Miriam turns to her father, Amram, and says, Tati, you're worse than Paro. Why? Paro was Gozer decreed on the boys. You decreed on the boys and the girl. Paro is a Russia. Maybe his decree will be fulfilled. Maybe it won't. You're a Tzaddik. Your decree clearly is being fulfilled. At which point the Medrash tells us that Amram was taken aback. And he took back his wife, Vayelech Yishmi Beis Levi. The man went from Beis Levi. This refers to Amram. Vayikachas Bas Levi. He took back his wife, Bas Levi. It's not our point now, but Rabbi Moshe Dov Harris made an observation on this particular medrash, which is brought by Rashi, that Lechora, Amram was a very wise man. He thought through the sugya. He probably discussed it with his friends, and he had Eitzah of Chachamim, at which point they decided it's wiser to not have children, rather to have them being killed wholesale by Paro. So what happened when his daughter said the words, Tati, you're worse than Paro? Apparently, there's a certain concept of a wisdom of an innocent person. In other words, a lot of times we make issues more complex than they really are. A lot of times, issues are really very, very simple. With all of the chashbonas and all of the complex thought processes, Amram, your result is worse than Paro. Paro decreed on the boys only. Your decree is on the boys and the girls. Yours will definitely be fulfilled at the net result. At the end of the day, you're worse than Paro. At which point, Amram said, you're right. And he changed his whole agenda. He turned back and took back his wife who he separated from. Now, you'll note that in this Pasuk, these two people are called Vayelech Ishmi, Beis Levi, a man from Beis Levi, he took a daughter from Levi. No names are mentioned. We know, because of the birth of the child from this union, which is Moshe, we know that in fact the two people were Amram and Yochavit. But there's no mention in the Psukim of their name. The morale tells us that this is very specific. The reason why the Torah did not mention their names is not by accident, but rather to teach us an important lesson and a very deep one. The morale says as follows. Normally, there are three partners in a child. There are three contributing entities that make up the child. There's Hashem, there's the father, and the mother. Meaning, the child that exists in front of you, there are three contributory sources. There's the gene pool of the father, the gene pool of the mother, and Hashem implants 
into the mix whatever it's supposed to be. Now this doesn't simply mean the behema, the nefesh bahami, but rather the entire complex unit called the child, not only in the physical sense, but in the spiritual sense also, there are three partners. There's partner one, Hashem, partner two, the father, partner three, the mother. This conglomerate, this new entity called the child, is made up from all three. But that was not what was happening in this situation. Says the Maral, Moshe Rabbeinu was an extraordinarily pure neshama that had to be put in this world. The goal, the purpose of Moshe Rabbeinu being put in this world was to be the manhig, the leader of the Klai Yisrael, to be the one to accept the Torah, and he was the greatest single human being who ever lived. The Pesach is very clear to tell us that this pure neshama from its unusual place was placed in this generation, not contributed to by the parents. It was an unusual birth, not like normally the father gives his part, the mother gives his, his, her part, no. The complete Neshama Moshe was, had to be placed in this world. It happened to be the most fitting family to put it in was the Gadol Adar's Amram and Yochevet. But it was unusual in the sense that it wasn't the parents contributing as normally. And therefore the names are left out. Now one more point of interest is the fact that she, Yochevet, in this passage is called Bas Levi. Now the reason why that's extremely interesting is because we know that the entire time from Yaakov coming down to Israel until the Jews leaving, the entire enslavement is 210 years. We also know that Yochevet was born Ben Achomos, on the way down. She was actually born while Yaakov was traveling down to Mitzrayim. She was actually born. And we also know from the time that she gave birth until the Yetzias Mitzrayim is actually 80 years. We know Moshe Rabbeinu, when he stood in front of Paro, was 80 years old. Which means at this point, if you take 210 years minus 80, this is 130 years after the Jews came into Mitzrayim, meaning this Bas Levi, Yochevet, is 130 years old. Now the reason why that's very important to note is because if you remember Sarah Imenu, when she was 90 years old and had a child, that was a nace that Avram made a party to show the whole world what an unbelievable miracle it was. This woman, Yochevet, is 130. It was a nace apparently bigger then merely sorry Imenu having Yitzhak at 90 she's 130 years old she's called Bas Levi because Rashi explains so she became young she became a metamorphosis a Trias Amasin type of metamorphosis where an old woman who physically is incapable of having children became young again so that she, be, she could have children Vatahara Isha the woman became pregnant Vatele Ben she gave birth to a son Vatera also they saw him Kitovu that he was good but and they hit him three months. Now what's unusual about this Pasuk is the wording here is Vatera Oso, they saw him Kitov, that he was good. Now Rashi points out that any mother thinks his, her child is good. What do you mean Kitov? So the Medrash tells us there are a number of things that were unusual about the birth of Moshe. Number one, obviously the fact that a 130 year old woman gives birth is very unusual. Number two, she had no Tsar Leda. There was no birth pains. From here, the Gemara learns out that the Noshim Tzitkani, as purely righteous women, were not included in the curse that was given to Chava. Chava was given the curse of Yarche Leda, pains of birth, because of inciting or involving Adam in the Chait. Women who are purely Tzadikis do not have, are not included in that curse. Number one, she had, number two, she had no pain. Number three, the child was born Mohol. Moshe Ben was born already with a bris mila. Number four, the bias was Mole Kula Ora. The entire house was filled with light. When you saw this light, there was an, a unique 
luminance that spread from this child, it was clear that the Shekhinah was with him. Meaning, it was obvious and clear that this was a unique child. Now what's interesting to note is that Miriam, who was a young child at the time, was Misnavit, was a Nevi'ah. We know that Sarimena was a Nevi'ah. We know that Esther, as we saw in the Megillah, was a Nevi'ah. One of the other seven Nevi'ahs was Miriam. And the first Nevi'ah that she said was that my mother will give birth to Moshiach and Shal Yisrael, to the Savior of Yisrael. She began saying this Nevi'ah before her mother gave birth. When in fact her mother gave birth and all of these various Nisim happened, her father Amram the Galadar touched her on the head and I see, she said, he said, I see your Nevi'ah, I see your prophecy has come true.